Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you carefully and reflectively read the prophecy of Malachi, then you're struck of how the spiritual situation of the Lord's church of Malachi's time and society was kind of a depression. It was in a depression. The, The people were down. And in that way, and in certain ways, that church of Malachi's time has quite a bit in common with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in general in our time. The time of Malachi was a time which, in which the people of the Lord, the Lord's church, were just discouraged. Malachi lived and prophesied in Israel after the 70 years of exile in Babel, in which the Lord had punished his people for their disobedience, for their idolatry and, and immorality. But after 70 years, the Lord had again shown mercy to them and he brought them back to the promised land. And that was, of course, in the time of Joshua and Zerubbabel, who led the people back to Israel. And when they were there, they had rebuilt the temple of the Lord. And when those who remember the old temple saw it, they had wept over that new temple because it wasn't nearly as beautiful as the one they remembered. And to comfort them then, the Lord had sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to them. And by the mouth of those two prophets, the Lord had promised them renewed blessings of, of prosperity and a great and a glorious future for his people. Now it's Malachi's time. And it is now about 100 years later. It is the time of Nehemiah's second term as governor over Judea. But there is still no any, not any sign of the promised prosperity or blessings. The nations around them are a constant threat to their safety. The economy is just not good. People have hardly enough to eat. And then they are looking for ways to improve the circumstances. Nothing helps. So we see discouraged people. We see people that do not really believe anymore in a God who is able to do mighty things. We see people that therefore serve the Lord half-heartedly. A people who has no great expectations of the Lord. There are people that have heard of the Lord's mighty blessings in the past, but they don't really believe that the Lord works like that anymore. You see, people have been trying by themselves to find solutions for their problems, but found none. So the words discouraged, hopeless, sad, distressed, forlorn, lonely, and confused describe the mood among the people of the Lord at that time, among his church. Spiritually, church-wise, as we would say, they were apathetic. They knew the teaching of the Lord. They listened to the message of the prophets. But to them, the Lord, as well as his message, has become 
theoretical religion unreal, not really relevant to the life of every day. What a sad picture of the Lord's people, is it not, brothers and sisters? The more so because they don't realize that the situation is this way because of their apathetic, their listless attitude towards the Lord. They are blind for the very root of their problems. The Lord, however, is the faithful God of his people. And he does not want to leave his people in this situation. And so it is that right in this time, the Lord sends Malachi, whose name means my messenger, with a message to his people. Through our text of this morning, the beginning of this message comes to us from the verses through to five of Malachi 1. As I will preach it to you under the team, our covenant God assures his people of his love for them. We will observe that the Lord does that in three different ways. First, he declares his love to his people. And then he demonstrates, or you could say he proves his love to his people. And then lastly, he guarantees a positive response of his people. So first, we look at how the Lord declares his love to his people. And it's very clear right away because the Lord begins this message with the words, I have loved you, says the Lord. Before the Lord is going to say anything else to his people, he declares his love to them. I have loved you. And of course, when you say it that way, then it points to the past. As if the Lord says, I have always loved you. There was never a moment that they did not love you. I have loved you when I took you to be my people. I have loved you when I led you for 40 years through the desert. I have loved you when you forsook me and left me. I also loved, loved you when I had to chastise, when I had to discipline you and delivered you into the hand of your enemies. I have loved you. Says the Lord. It points to the past. And now we could, of course, we should, of course, not understand this as if the Lord now does not love his people any longer, as if the Lord's love is really something of the past. The fact that the Lord comes to his people in a time that his people actually lost real faith in him shows that he still loves them. So if you hear the Lord say, I have loved you, then this is really a declaration of the Lord's continuing love of his people. It shows that the Lord's love for his people is abiding, it is everlasting. It shows the Lord as a father who loves his children unconditionally. It shows him as a faithful God of the covenant who will remain faithful no matter what. Just as the Apostle Paul says it in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot disown himself. I have loved you, says the Lord. And the word translated Lord is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is the name 
of the covenant name of God. It's the name that means I am who I am. It's the name that indicates that God never goes back on his promises and that his love for his people endures forever. And forever means that also in our time, the Lord continues to love his people. And that he loves them unconditionally. That he loves them in spite of all the shortcomings. It's our, somebody's like those of the people in Malachi's time. Brothers and sisters, it means that the Lord this morning is coming to you and says also to you, I have loved you. I have loved you. No question. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that the Lord says to you, I have loved you and I love you. If you look a moment, for a moment at ourselves, as God's covenant people, then, then we have to admit that we do have things in common with the people of Malachi's time. Just read carefully through the book of Malachi and you will see, if you think about it, you find the same things back now in our time among Christianity in general. And we are part of it. As you've seen, the people of Israel did not really expect great things of the Lord any longer. They were discouraged. They were people who served the Lord half-heartedly. They, so to speak, walked with one leg in the church and the other one in the world. They were not warm. They were not cold. But they didn't realize that themselves. They thought they were doing well. And isn't it true with many of his brothers and sisters? In the time maybe with all of us. But yes, on the one hand, we do believe in the Lord. Of course we do. And yes, in a way, we also believe what the Bible says about the Lord, that that is true. But then on the other hand, so often the Lord seemed to be so far away, so unreal, so... Not so involved with our life of every day. Really, if we think about it, is that not how we, how we feel often? I mean, do we, do we really expect the Lord to do great and mighty things for us? For me, for you? Or do we believe that he is certainly able to do so, but, well, we don't see much of it? Isn't it true that we have learned to live in it? That we have actually accepted that as something straight, yes. Is it not true that for many of us, we often fail to see the hand of the Lord in the things that are going on around us. The things around us, are they not just happening? Now, we don't say that to each other in Bible study, of course not. But that's how we live. 
vision of truth that we hardly live in a way that which reflects that we believe in a God who is great and wonderful in all of his works. In a God who has the whole world in his hand. Of course we know that. But do we live that way? Do we live the way that, that, we, that we have a Savior who rules this world as head of the church, but also of the, for the good of the church, of his people? Do we live that way? Do we think that way? Do we look that way at the world? And all the things that happen around us and all the things that happen in our lives. Just ask yourself this question. Do I really live and act as if I am 100% convinced that I am a child of my heavenly father who is most merciful, most kind and accomplishes great things for all his children? Or do I, on the other hand, also live and act as if I am convinced that the Lord also is great and terrible in his judgments? Do we have that kind of a view of the Lord, that he is mighty in mercy, but also mighty in, in, in righteousness and in, and in judgment? We on the one hand really, and in all actually, actuality, see the loving hand of your faithful covenant God in every breath you take, in the food you eat, in the clothes you wear, the great blessing beside and beyond all these things? Do you see a rejoice when you see his love in the growth of his church in other parts of the world? We living for that? Or are we just focused upon ourselves? And yes, we hear that in China... There is a church that is most likely greater in number than in North America, but no. This is China. You forget that it's part of his kingdom, where we are a part of. And the small view of the kingdom, then the small view of God too. You see, the Lord's, also the Lord's judgment against the sins of people who are not his people. You see that. The disasters and the calamities in this world, are you encouraged by them? So that you see that these things happening and say, yes, our God does live and he, and he rules and he is just and he is almighty. You rejoice in the opportunities this affords you to show the love of Christ to those who suffer under those judgments. Or have you already become so much a person who sees the blessings as well as the judgment of God without really connecting them to him? Could it be that without realizing it, they have been influenced by the lies of modern, modern Christianity which, and, and popular Christianity which teaches that God loves everyone. And he tries to bless everyone. 
And he punishes no one. And he don't want his people to suffer. And when they do, then he didn't want it to happen. And he suffers too. Could it be that we are influenced somewhat by that? Are you looking at the things that are happening every day as the Lord's doings? And are you therefore serving the Lord with all your heart and your life? And brothers and sisters, if you so take a good look, a good and an honest look at yourself as a believer, and then also, of course, at yourself as a congregation, as a people of the Lord, and then I ask you again, does it surprise you this morning that the first thing the Lord says to you is, I have loved you. I've always loved you. Still love you. What would you say? From the day that you were conceived, the Lord loved you. In the following passages of this book, the Lord will have some hard and serious things to say to his people and also to us in our time. But the first thing he does is declining his love for people, for you and for me. And, he's, and he does that so that you may know that when in this book the Lord confronts you with your sins and your shortcomings, that he does it because he loves you. But let's now go on and see in our second point that the Lord demonstrates or proves his love to his people. We read in verse 2 that the people answered the Lord's declaration of love for them with a very, actually, offensive question. It's really telling their opinion of the Lord. And the question is, how have you loved us? Imagine asking God that question, how have you loved us? Would that not be the utter sign of taking him and his blessings and his love for granted and having sight, lost sight of, of, of who God is? Think about it. This God, I have loved you. How have you loved us? Do you not expect the Lord's wrath to explode all over you? What is more wounding than, and, and hurtful than spurned love? Imagine, kids, that one day you really want to show your mom that you, you, that you love her. And you begin the day and you bring her breakfast in bed and you help her all day long and you wash the dishes, you do whatever you can and it isn't even Mother's Day because you want to show her that you love her so much. And then on the end of the day, you say to her, Mom, I love you. Now imagine that she would say, Well, how have you loved me? Wouldn't that hurt? And, and that's what here in our text, the people of the Lord exactly said to the Lord. And the miracle is that the Lord does not get offended. If anything, then he shows his great love and grace and patience by not turning away from the people, even 
though they asked him such an irreverent, dishonest, and unthankful question. Yeah, then, then the question really shows the depressed mood among the people of the Lord of that time. They did not see any longer the special blessings of being the Lord's people. In what? Did it show that they were the special people of the Lord? They didn't see it. As you already said, the Lord truly loves his people. And he had great patience with them. And it is therefore that the Lord is just going to ignore the offense and answer this question of his people. And the way he does it, we read in the verses 2 through 4. In the, part, in the last part of verse 2, we see that the Lord does this by proving his love from history. He asked the people of Israel a question, of which they knew the answer very well. He asked, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And they all knew it. Of course he was. What the Lord meant is, however, were they not brothers? Were they not from the same family? Were they not both, maybe in different ways, but nevertheless equally sinful people? Yes, they were. But then the Lord comes to the point and he says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Already in Genesis 25, verse 23, the Lord had told Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, that Esau would serve the Jacob. What has always hated Esau and loved Jacob. It has continued because here in our text, the Lord does not point so much to Jacob and Esau themselves, but more to their descendants, to the people of Israel, and to, and to the descendants of Esau, the, the people of Edom. We read the rest of it in verse 3, where the Lord says, I have laid waste the hill country and left his heritage to jackals and the desert. The Lord is now going to show how he deals with the Edomites in difference of how he dealt with his people Israel. You see, when the people of Israel were taken captive to Babel, they were not the only ones. No, the Edomites were taken captive too, a little later, but nevertheless. And the Lord had also their cities and their lands destroyed by the Babylonians. But the difference is what we read in verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And it will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. This is how the Lord proves his love to his people. The Lord's people have to look at Edom. The people that God hates. And then they will see a great difference. People of the Lord have been able to rebuild the temple. They have been able to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. They have been able to rebuild their houses, their towns and their fields. They have been able to do so because the Lord had provided for all the things they needed. 
He made them succeed in spite of the effort of their enemies to stop them and to destroy them. The Lord had bent the hearts of the great and mighty kings of the Persian Empire so that his people lived under their protection. So the Lord used the mighty of the world for the upbuilding and the restoration of his people just as he had promised. Not so with the Edomites. The Lord hates them. He always hated them. Oh, they too made plans. They had seen and heard what the people of Israel did. And they too said that they would rebuild again. But the Lord says, no, not you. You will not be a people again. The Lord is going to make it very evident that he does not love the descendants of Esau, but that he hates them. And that so much that other people will call the Edomites a people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And it is in this way that the Lord demonstrates and proves the love for his people. He shows it before their eyes. The temple, Jerusalem, the walls, the gates, their own houses, their towns, they all show how the Lord has blessed them. Now look how south of the border. In the land of the people that God hates. It's left for the jackals of the desert. Now why why did the Lord, this is of course a good question, why did the Lord choose to love Jacob and his descendants, but at the same time choose Esau and his descendants to hate them? And the short answer is because the Lord is sovereign. He decided to do so, and, and that is why we should leave it, really. You see, Jacob and Esau were brothers. That is what the Lord says. Are they not brothers? Both were born sinners. Both were equally worthy of God's hatred. So that, and if that is true, and it is, then so the real question is not why did God chose to hate Esau, but the question is why did God chose to love Jacob? And of course, the answer is the same. It is because of the glorious sovereignty of a loving God. But it's all because of grace. God chose to be gracious to his people. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, verse 22 and 23, he writes there, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and to make his power Known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? What if that was God's plan? Don't say, well, why does God then still blame them? For who can resist his will? Because the answer will remain always the same. But who are you, O man, to tell, talk back to God? Shall what is foreign say to him who formed it? 
Why did you make me this way? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, the Lord has still his chosen people. And days he will love and he will save. The others he rejects. He leaves them in the fall and rebellion they have chosen. He hates them. And he will destroy them. In them he will glorify his justice. In us his mercy. In the New Testament it is not longer as especially the people of Israel as a nation that are God's chosen ones, but it is his church, whom he calls from all over the world. And brothers and sisters, young and old, the Lord comes to everyone who belongs to his church. And he says, I have loved you. And if you too would be discouraged at times, and your faith would be as listless as it was the case in the people of the Lord in the time of our text, and you would ask, Maybe not out loud, but in your heart, how have you loved us? Then the Lord will demonstrate his love to you today in exactly the same way as he did so many years ago to the Israelites. Just look at whom he loves and whom he hates. Just look at this unbelieving world. Just look at the increasing ungodliness of our own nation. Look at the ever-increasing selfishness of our society. Lifestyles that are condemned by the Lord in the Bible are promoted and encouraged. It doesn't take very long to see the the decadence, the rottenness, the, the erosion and the degradation of our society. It becomes every day more obvious. Problems with crime, youth crime, with violence against defenseless people. Problems with broken families. Problems with lethal violence among families and schools. Problems with child abuse. Problems with spouse abuse. All these things, they are screaming to us from the pages of our newspapers and they have become almost a monotonous wail in our daily newscasts. And our government and the magistrates are blindly searching for solutions. They, they, they ask all kinds of experts and they get all kinds of expert answers. And together with the experts, they grope for ways out and they seem to get deeper in all the time. doesn't get better. How many billions are already spent to, to improve our society and see where it's going? They're searching all over the world for wisdom and they find none. Like blind men, they walk around and they don't know where they are going. See what happens in our time to those whom God hates. And of course, it is not really politically correct, not even among us anymore, that God hates. But he does hate people who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not neutral towards them. See where they go. The difference there is congregation. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, do you see how good now the Lord still to you is? Do you now see how he loves you? You you don't need to grope around in the dark like a blind man 
as not a sign of his love. He has given you his word. And reading and obeying his word, you walk in the light. And in his word, you find a great wealth of wisdom. And, and if you would still lack it, then, then in his word we read, and if, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. In the Bible you can read that he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son for you so that you may be his child. You can read that this son, our Savior, loved you so much that he gave his life for you. To you God gave the church, the communion of the saints, so that you may help others, but also in times of need may be helped by others. Well, this individualistic world is full of lonely people. I hope you don't think that it's just a natural outflow from what's happening in the world and what happens if a group of people come together in a church. No, that's the Lord's doing. That's the Lord's gifts. That's the Lord's working. Things are not just happening. Nothing is just happening. It's all by his hand. You may go to bed at night in the knowledge that the Lord watches over you in love. And you may know that whatever happens to you, even if, if, if it are things that hurt you, he will turn it to you good. He will, and there is no doubt about it. He loves you. And while others with anxious hearts search for around for solutions, for their ever-increasing problems, while they cannot find counselors and experts and psychologists enough, you may wake up in the morning and sing with the poet of Psalm 3, whenever to God I cried, he hastened to my side in all my tribulation. I lay down and slept. I woke for I was kept in his divine protection. The Lord was on my side. My safety he supplied. Whatever my affliction. And so the Lord demonstrates his love for you every day. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. I have loved you. But Esau have hated. So brothers and sisters, this morning the Lord comes to you and he says... I have always loved you. I will always love you. And I demonstrate it every day all around you. Great God he is. And what love and care does he devote to you. How worthy is it that you seek him while he is near. Seek him in your prayers. In his word. That you listen to him. Through these things he gives you light upon your path. He gives direction to your life. He continues to show his love for you. So don't stick to your covenant God. He assures you this morning of his love. We look at this assurance of love. Now briefly, if we look at the third point, that the Lord guarantees a positive response to his people. Let's read the verses 4 and 5 again. It says, If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Their own, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, 
Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is what the Lord promises to his people in our text. The Lord loves his people so much that he guarantees that there will come a time that all his people will recognize the greatness of his works, not only among them, but also beyond the border. Among those who are not his people. And they will praise him for his greatness. Even those of his people who in our text act so discouraged, so listless towards him. He will say in this way, I have loved you and will always love you and there will most certainly come a time that the difference between you whom I love and those whom I hate will be so obvious to you that you will praise my name, that you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The congregation have seen this promise of the Lord already partially fulfilled. For about 400 years after the time of Malachi, there is a young girl by the name of Mary, and she bursts out in song, and she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And we, brothers and sisters, we have all this written in his word. And there you can read how the Lord Jesus came into this world and showed you his and his father's love for you, his people. In the Lord Jesus, God came to you in a most moving and affectionate way and said to you, I have loved you. I will always love you. And so, encouraged, brothers and sisters, you may go on. You may go on ashamed of maybe your somewhat apathetic attitudes towards the Lord and his kingdom. Ashamed also of your lack of attention when he shows you his love day upon day. But you may go on with these words ringing in your ears. I have loved you, says the Lord. And if through weakness... We should become discouraged again. The Lord says it again. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And you now know what exactly the Lord meant with that. You look at the difference between you whom he loves and those whom he hates. And you know it again for sure. The Lord loves me. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Amen.